I would like to just add that I would, as a poker player, if you are sitting at the table with me, please do not take those refresher courses on statistics <laughs> and probability. I would rather you stay ignorant. I can make more money that way. That's the point of the profession, isn't it? Well, if I'm playing against you, I have a 50-50 chance of winning, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about an unfortunate physical constant, the speed of light. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So the alternate title for this episode really is Latency, or How the Fundamental Constants of the Universe Hate Us and Want Us to Fail. I was recently having a conversation with my with my son about kind of latency and, and the back and forth nature of things. And I referenced the fact that, you know, we are all bound by these unfortunate constants, one of them being the speed of light. And he kind of looked at me. And Damn was, physics. Know, and it's 290 something million meters a second. And we ask the the voice powered Internet assistant and confirms that I am very close. The actual speed is 299 million 792,458 meters a second. So I was within an order of magnitude. But that kind of gates everything we do um, in this field. Everything is bound some way or another by the speed of light and the latency that incurs. This is everything from the speed of compute actions to how fast you can pull memory off of a device to how long it takes to respond to network requests and all the way up the stack to organizational latency, to how long it takes for uh, you know, a business process to be approved or for a compile to happen or other cycle times. And CPU clocks are billions of cycles per second, and they execute multiple instructions per cycle, but that's only one order of magnitude more than the speed of light. So at, at some point, the, the speed of how you can get data off of the PCI bus, off of the, the bus to memory, really becomes important. There was a really great analogy several years ago that I saw on, I think it was either Reddit or Hacker News, and it was talking about the relative speed of of computer systems. It was trying to put it in human terms. And so they, they say, imagine that you're eating a sandwich. You're sitting in your kitchen, you're eating a sandwich. The food that's in your mouth is what's on the register on the CPU right now that's being acted upon. The sandwich on the plate is your L1 register. You want to you want to have a bite of sandwich? You just pick it up. You put it in your mouth. RAM is like, oh well, you're gonna make a sandwich. Your hard drive is, I'm gonna go to the store, and I'm gonna buy seed, so I can grow <laughs> wheat. <laughs> and that's the relativistic, like, oh wow, it's a huge jump. Yeah. Now, but come on, we've got SSDs now, so it's just like you going to the store and buying a loaf of bread, right? Yeah, well, yeah, an SSD is, is significantly faster than a spinning disk. But they still have older interfaces that they're connected to that are growing seeds. That's been one of the few areas in, in computing that has really seen a lot of change and churn over the last several years. The fact that you can get an NVMe uh, SSD that attaches directly to your PCI V4 bus and actually gives you 
you know, near RAM-like performance. Well, also, RAM's in, the speed of RAM has been increasing dramatically year over year over year. Uh, DDR4 is the new hotness. I'm sure there's other stuff coming. But one of the reasons that people are discarding old cloud servers, you, know, like, you go on eBay and find these old like open computer, windmill, or whatever they call these systems, and they're really inexpensive. But they're all like DDR2 controllers. So for a cloud provider, they really, like, the memory is one of the slowest pieces of their system. It's one of the big, their big bottlenecks. So they're discarding the old hardware because they need faster everything. On the topic of, um, you know, giving relative speeds or whatever, there's a, there's a good book called uh, High Performance Browser uh, Networking, which I think has several chapters dedicated to uh, talking about different latencies. Uh, it even goes into uh, talking about mobile phones and uh, battery life and the impact of uh, network requests onto those kinds of things. And it has a good quote that I think is is relevant as well. Uh, in I believe it's actually in the forward where it says, good developers know how things work. Great developers know why things work. And I think that's very important is to understand why things, why there's limitations and what they are so that you can work around them or not fall into pitfalls of just, ah, I'll just fall back to, to querying it from, uh, you know, the drive or whatever, instead of actually trying to cache things in memory or, or the like. If I have to swap every once in a while, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, on, on that topic, like there was a, a bug in the ZSYS stuff on Ubuntu when I first set up my, my desktop and it caused every apt operation to try to hit some API or some endpoint that had a 30 second timeout. And imagine if every apt update you did, every package, every info request, you added 30 seconds to latency to that action. It literally took hours to update the system. It was mm. awful. Since fixed, obviously. But moving along, the this latency is not just in your computer. So you have the latency from the processor to the memory and the latency from all of those things to your, your storage devices. But there's also latency when you hit the network interface to say, hey, I need to go get a piece of data off of another system, off of a network storage device, or God forbid, out of the cloud, because... Your, your round trip time has just gone from, you know, nanoseconds to microseconds to milliseconds. It, mm. You keep on slowing down. The, the major cloud providers have these handy tools. I'll throw two of them to the show notes, one for GCP and one for AWS, where you can see the latency from where you're sitting to the closest um, provider. Now, wait a minute. The, I don't think these are the cloud providers' tools. I think these are handy people on the internet tools. Fair enough. That, that is probably a better <laughs> way to say that. Um, but they're handy tools if you're trying to understand from where you are, what the relative latency of, say, U.S. East 4, U.S. West 1, or the Singapore data centers are. And it's shocking how, well, not shocking if you're aware of these things, but if you're, if you're unaware of the, the way these, these, fun, these fundamental constants work, it's amazing how different they are. And the choice of your data center, the choice of the region you put stuff in, has huge impact on everything you do. And even uh, latency within a, an, an availability zone. Um, you know, I know in AWS, for example, it, like uh, US East, obviously, I mean, that's a region everybody loves to pick on. There's multiple da data centers within the same availability zone. And you can't guarantee that even if you're in the same AZ, that your, re your uh, response time will be uh, very, very low because you may be going across a WAN 
within the same uh, but to go to another to your neighbor. Do you know what typical response times uh, ping latencies are for US East one? I actually do not know. Man, that would be cool. Okay, that that would be cool. I wish I had known that. Sorry, we run an EU West one, so. But I mean, that, that's a great point. If you have customers in Europe and you are in San Francisco and you're putting everything into U.S. West because it's close for you, the customers in San Francisco are going to have a really different experience than you do, especially if you're doing a lot of round trips on something, if you're doing a lot of repeated cash lookups, if you're doing a lot of repeated other kind of operations. Every one of those operations now magnifies your round trip time each time the user hits it. So if you bring up like the web developer console on any of your favorite sites and you look at all of the different resources that get, they get lit up there. Imagine what happens when latency goes, when latency just doubles and suddenly every one of those requests also has to wait and page and it kills every aspect of performance. I think that's yeah. really amazing because you pop open the developer console on your browser and you're to load a single web page, you're doing a hundred or so HTTP requests at times. And it's really eye opening to see what your browser is doing to render the page and taking that new toward the, the, the development side, the microservice side. Um, I've worked with folks that have, you know, added more and more SQL database calls to their application as, as time goes on, because, you know, that's what you do, right? And we end up with issues of how many database calls are we making to render, you know, the home page, the home dashboard when you log in? How are, do we process those in parallel? What's the latency there? Are we doing those in serial? How long does that take? What does that do to the customer experience? And and things like that aren't a single operation. You know, when you when you start tearing them down, you're doing DNS lookups, you're, you know, TCP plus retries because, hey, it does happen, packets get lost. You know, the, everything just magnifies when you're doing that many operations. And when there's a hiccup along the way with one of them that slows them all down, it just climbs through the roof. Well, I mean, the old joke about, you know, it's always DNS. It's because when DNS latency goes up, every operation you do across everything you do slows down. Yep. Everything. It always it can is make DNS. Things... It is. And, and that's one of the downfalls of everything's a service almost or, or to the point of instead of me, I mean, for example, analytics, I feel like back... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say back in the day, but uh, pre, yes, you do, especially, Jerry. come on, <laughs> especially you're pre old enough Google. to finally say that now, Jerry, come on. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, just pre Google analytics. I mean, everybody would just run, uh, oh, what was the software that you would, that would parse Apache logs, um, that, and, and they would build your, you know, your graphs and everything. And then, you know, things moved over to web-based. And so instead of you just parsing server side logs, you would send, uh, you have a JavaScript library that would send requests along and everything like that. And it, everything has just grown and grown and grown. And obviously we, we have analytic or uh, advertising as well that eats up a good bit of that. Uh, but even, st even if you take away advertising, there's still uh, everything that people do. And it's, it's just, it, I wish things were a little more monolithic. 
Well, I mean, there, there's a balance to be struck there, but you're absolutely right that that one of the things that's been said for what five, six, seven years now is that slow is the new down. That we keep on moving more of these things into the client side and expecting the client side to be fast all the time. But from a user's perspective, once any piece in that stack gets slow and you have to wait, you know, whole whole positive integer number of seconds to get a page to start loading, it may as well be broken. It may as well be down for them and they go somewhere else. And the thing is for you, it looks like it's up. But as we push more and more parts of our stacks into AWS services, for example, uh, we depend more and more on AWS services to be fast and do the right thing until we get latency issues or or we we're making a bunch of Kafka uh, consumer producer requests and those things start to add up. Well, yeah, like in any distributed in any distributed system, it is impossible to tell the difference between a failed node and a slow node because that's how math is. So you have to be careful when you're designing these things that latency actually matters a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, didn't several consensus uh, several consensus algorithms have to change because or fell out of favor because they were just horrible at detecting uh, whether a node was just slow versus uh, just completely unresponsive? Yeah, and the Jepson talks um, we've talked about them before on this on this podcast. The the Jepson investigations and talks are really amazing and eye opening when. You're trying to understand the failure mode of a distributed system, especially when it comes to out of order or slow or non-responsive things. It's it's a great, you know, couple afternoons of digging into while your code's compiling to understand a little better how some of these systems work on the back end. Oh, and the log parsing software I was trying to think of, it was AW Stats. That's uh God, I think I still have that running someplace. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> just seeing the in Google Images, just seeing the uh, the old screenshots of it. Obviously, it was a a, a previous era, uh, but anyway. Yeah. But no, yeah, we're once... talking about the cap theorem. Uh, as far as distributed uh, applications are concerned, you can choose two of three. You can choose consistency, availability, or resistant to partitions. Well, once upon a time, I was working on a distributed system. Um, for remote execution and defining timeouts was a huge thing because sending that work out a second time was incredibly expensive. So you have to, how long do I wait before I give up and try again? And, and that's, you're right, you know, Late, late is down because if I got to do it again, but that's, you know, depending on the workload and uh, what you're talking about, you know, we were putting, sending out a, a task to be executed again out into the cluster. Well, that means the other one's already out there. So now it's doing twice the work just because it was slow. And then you have to be careful about, like, is the system actually idempotent or is it not? Did we design it in a way that if we run that command twice, that it's fine? Or is this really a singleton that can only be run once ever? It, it gets hard. And one of the one of the things as you do sort of up that maturity ladder is figuring out you know, exactly what you can do. Um, I remember uh, when I was a young sysadmin, you know, fresh out of college or in college, really. 
and I realized that you know, the most common problem failure that we're having um, where I work at the time was where we have system disks fail. Uh, the, the disk that holds you know, your OS that you, know, you boot off of. And I was pushing Linux and setting up RAID and backups in Linux with multiple disks is really easily. And I, I, as well as I was teaching others to shift their you know, thinking to, you know, instead of just hoping the hard drive doesn't fail to planning for that hard drive because it will fail. And then when we need to do recovery of that machine, it's routine and normal maintenance and doesn't end up being an outage for our customers. And, you know, I, I kind of map that to doing distributed systems today of what are some of the practices that we can, we can do to realize that and to keep latency down. One of the things this reminds me of is when there was a bunch of ink spilled on the internet a number of years ago about how, you know, RAID 5 was effectively over. And the argument was really more that disks had gotten so large, but the the interfaces they were plugged into had not also increased in size or in, in speed. So the mean time to failure for disks for a RAID 5 set on very large drives meant that if you had one disk fail, while you're rebuilding the array, you are likely to have a second disk fail or have a similar kind of error. So with smaller disks, it's fine. But as things get bigger, you have to start planning for these kinds of failures. And these failures are tied up into how long does it take to actually do it? Like, sure, you can have your backups on tape instead of on a, on a second hard drive, but it also means that that node is gonna be out of, out of the pool or, or completely offline until you can restore from tape. And for those who don't know, Restoring from tape is not exactly a quick process. Yeah, I, I was about to say, it, it basically defeats the entire purpose of RAID, <laughs> which is you can keep going with a failure and be okay. One of the interesting things about this is the fact that you can take your hard drive, turn it over, and there's a number on the back that will tell you how many bits that that hard drive will, will transmit, store between uh, it accidentally or, or whatever, or failing to... Uh, flip a bit properly so you know what the error rate for the data coming off that hard drive is and i realized that once you have uh 500 terabytes to a pentabyte of storage racked up somewhere on a special and spinning rust i can tell you statistically that you have bit flips and corruption somewhere in that data to be uh -huh, fair ZFS. to be fair <laughs> ssd's have similar issues it's more of the the actual uh volatile part that's the where the data is stored dies and so you have, you actually see less and less storage uh and you end up losing bits that where that was stored there uh now some modern ssd or i guess newer ssds actually have are over provisioned than what they say so that way as uh these modules die they can just put another module in and it still be you know a, a terabyte or whatever come on jared right exactly but yeah, so ssds have similar thing it's just they fail at a different rate well when you start talking about petabyte scale meantime to failure says something is always dead <laughs> right yeah and well, and i agree jack I, honestly the, the solution is zfs uh you you move to software yeah you buy less expensive drives but you make sure that you can audit the, the, the validity and the correctness of the data on an ongoing basis. 
but that also has a performance and time impact. Um, early in the ZFS days, I was running a Solaris 10 mail server and doing a scrub caused all kinds of haywire to break would break loose because well, scrub the, still calls haywire, but yeah. it was, it was causing all the, the, the data for all the university systems, the, all the students and the faculty members were trying to get to their mail system from the mail server degraded performance. And so we had to be really careful about when you scrubbed, but it's that kind of set of tools that we know so well for managing hard drive and storage that I'm reaching for to figure out, you know, how do we manage new complex distributed microservices? Well, conceptually, what's the real difference between a load balancer and a RAID set? You're still sending the data out to multiple places, hoping that it comes back. And <laughs> Yeah, what the timeout is on that retry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's, you know, we're just moving it around again. Except our our disks in the RAID set are not made up of disks, which are made up of disks. Um <laughs> The, the beauty and the curse of microservices is it can be arbitrarily complex. And that causes so many fun things. That, again, we've talked about before on, the, on this show, but it can, it can make debugging these things, especially when latency becomes an issue, that it's, it's really hard. I mean, think, think of putting an application or a whatever router in front of a large um, internet-facing application. So you're running a a startup of some variety and you hit the unicorn phase. And so suddenly you have all the attention of all the people in the world coming at you and your authentication proxy or your, one of your other proxies internally, one of your microservices that's supposed to be handling a simple, small task has a routing bug and it's causing everything to look up twice. Suddenly the CPU need and the disk need and the memory need of those things skyrocket and everything else craters along with it. And is it obvious what happened? So many complex parts prone to failure. Well, and as you said, where's the latency? You know, it depends on how well your monitoring system is, if you can pinpoint where it is. But from the user's point of view, it's just really slow to unusable. And I've had that conversation a lot, um, trying to develop SLOs for microservices and dealing with the fact that you've got to wrap, you know, your SLO around the specific service in the microservice stack that also has its own dependencies. So you realize that your SLO can't be better than the SLOs of your dependencies. And, you know, if you uh, don't stack them right, it can be a lot worse. Some your rates don't rate your sums or, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of the whole concept that that I, I think about uh, the 1986 Challenger disaster and disaster it was but looking at the statistics that we've done it, it to root cause that situation and you know, the aftermath revealing that each O-ring in the rockets um, at that temperature they were trying to fly at had a 13% chance of failure well that's a little bit you bet worse than you know one in ten. That's pretty bad. But there, how many O rings are in all the rockets? Six or is it eight? If you take all, if you take six O rings and you multiply that thirteen percent together, you get an eighty percent chance of failure. So it, the more parts you have, each with their own 
failure you know, rates, you get to multiply all those together to get the overall failure rate of the system. And the more complex and more parts you have prone to failure, that number can get really big really quick. One of the things that, that really kills me is the number of adults that I've worked with who have a fundamental misunderstanding of statistics. Everybody really should take, like every couple of years, you should take a refresher on basic statistics of probability because it will, especially in this field, it'll really help you understand the difference between errors that accumulate and errors that are one time. Um, and that's the, the O-ring stuff is a great example of it, but there's lots of other times in in our computing lives that, that not understanding the difference is important. It's kind of like not getting the difference between bandwidth and latency, um, like the bandwidth delay product stuff where you can, the the limitation on how fast you can transmit data over high, a high latency link is capped by your um, your window size. And if you don't understand that relationship, you get these weird errors and these weird performance issues. So being able to distinguish latency versus bandwidth is hugely important. So I spend a lot of time in the HPC world where latency is king or rather the opposite because you want as little as Perhaps possible. the devil? <laughs> it, it can be the devil because when it goes wrong, it's bad. But there, you know, everybody uses InfiniBand as their interconnect. And it is not for the bandwidth. You know, the, the speeds are always quoted as, oh, it's, you know, I mean, I think it's up over 200 gig, gig a second now is the king. Well, come on, that's nothing now. Yeah. Um, but that's not what they're using it for. They're using it for the latency. Because most things are using RDMA, which is remote distributed mem memory. Um, you will ac directly access memory locations on another system. And as we've been talking about, memory access is fast. Well, you want that small chunk of memory returned to you as quick as possible. You want low latency. I don't need to move a huge amount of memory, a huge amount of data, but I need it quickly. It needs to turn around, and that's, and so every that's that is the issue with InfiniBand for people is not not to transfer huge chunks of videos across an InfiniBand link quickly. You're not going to do it. You don't want to do it, but you do want to poke that memory address on that other system and get the results quick. If you've done work in Linux and used uh, MimMap to increase your performance accessing memory or accessing files on disk. As far as I understand, InfiniBand basically gives you the ability to, to MimMap memory on a remote machine. Pretty much. You, there's, there's libraries in between, but it's kind of similar of saying malloc and getting a chunk from another system. You've got a pointer and it ends up being a uh, I, some memory addresses elsewhere. And that is one of the most performant ways that that a kernel works. Yep. And it's it has lots and lots of advantages. But the problem is, you, you know, you're, you're operating and expecting to operate at that kind of latency. When it spikes, the consequences are ridiculous. Think about if think about if your main memory all of a sudden operated at disk speed. Everything stops. Yep. Fun times. So, 
Although interestingly, you mentioned that you, know, you don't use RDMA for file access or streaming videos. Microsoft's SMB2 stuff in the more recent Windows Server implementations, if you have um, RDMA network adapters or InfiniBand on the servers, and you have a cluster of the file servers, they will actually use that to pull data off of other file locations um, rather than having rather than going through the network and then through sure. the network driver and then through the, the OS syscalls and everything. It just goes directly to what it needs. Um, I, I've, I've used it for Lustre file systems in, H, in the HBC world, which, you know, that was running through the, the um, InfiniBand network. If you started hitting it hard, it was slow. It, you know, it, that's not what the overall stuff is designed for. Um, but you can use it that way, and it still is better than using the Ethernet adapter. Um, but I, most of the uses for that the people care about is the RDMA. It's nice to have the f file system going through there, but the low, and, and think about, you know, when you're looking up stuff in the metadata to access a file, that's fast. You know, what's interesting, uh, Brendan, with you mentioning about, you know, uh, Samba having that support, which cloud provider is the only provider that offers uh, InfiniBand. Microsoft Azure. That's right. Others are getting there. It they are? Is a, it is available elsewhere. Oh, okay. Wow. But, but AWS has finally decided that RDMA is a good thing? Yeah, I, I have to take a little time to find, because it's not prevalent, but yeah. Um, the, the last HPC cluster I was running was a virtual one in Azure because of the InfiniBand. Yeah, I was at um, AWS reInvent three or four years ago, and I found the, the Amazon engineers that were working on this stuff, on, the, on, the, on their HPC implementations. And I asked them very pointedly if they were, had any plans in doing um, either MPI or RDMA or whatever. It, effectively, are you going to do InfiniBand? And they said, we, no, we, we don't need it. And I said, well, okay, I've got a use case for it, um, but I'm not going to you know, spill the secret sauce, so never mind. And they're like, yeah, we, don't, we, don't, we, can't, we can't do it right now. So I'm hoping that changes because it, it opens up new possibilities for folks. It is, it is changing. Um, and there are, you know, more and more uses for it. Pe things are, everything's marching along, getting faster, and people want the speed. So p pivoting slightly, um, we've been on latency a lot in terms of systems design, systems architecture, programming, those kinds of things. But latency also impacts us in more human ways, more direct ways. And a lot of these that I can think of immediately come from things like how long does it take your code to compile? How long does it take for the test suite to run? If you have to wait 10 minutes to see if your, if your attempted change fixed the bug or if you can do it live in your editor, that's a huge difference. And it really impacts the way you do development and the way your team is able to interact with each other and the way your team is able to get, you know, kind of get, get products out the door and get, get things moving. And a lot of folks don't pay attention to the latency in human operations as much as they, nearly as much as they should. It's really weird how this maps to the latency of human operations just perfectly. 
And I mean, at doing system administration, you know, DevOpsy, SRE kind of work, the thing I hate the most, but really grinds my gears, is I can't run this Terraform until I get it PR'd and approved and merged to master. Oh, there was a bug. It didn't do exactly what I expected. I have to start code change, PR, approve, master. And that cycle until I can you know, get the Terraform uh, working as I intended. And that's really painful. Usually indicating a, a some sort of broken process, but really painful. <laughs> There's a really amazing XKCD that I'll throw into the show notes, uh, number 1205, and it's the time-saving chart. And it's looking at tasks you do every day or every week or every whatever interval. And over the course of five years, if you put in some time right now, how much time can you put in versus how much time will it save you? And the I guess one of the good examples is if you do something once a day and you can cut five minutes off the task, go ahead and put 20 hours into fixing it because over five years, you will save time. And so if you can really find something that will cut five minutes off of your, your daily patterns, yeah, invest time in fixing it because that's going to cut down on cycle time for everything else you do for the next five years. And let you get more stuff done in those five years. And then magnify that by the fact that, especially at work, a lot of these changes are impacting many developers or many operations folks or many legal assets or whatever it is. You have all of these people who are depending on systems. And if the systems are slow or the systems are, are being made inefficient or whatever it is, Cutting the time down can really save everybody hassle and make the entire organization move more efficiently and more, and I hate this phrase, but in a more agile way. This was, and that's uh, the whole point of DevOps, isn't it? Is you, you lower those, you make these feedback loops, you lower those latency times, and you can release code five or 10 times a day versus once a month. Well, this was a, an argument I was having, well, not an argument, discussion I was having with somebody else not too long ago about, I was at a small organization and grumbling why things hadn't gotten fixed. I was like, well, it's a small organization. If it's going to take you a long time to fix this, there's just not enough people to make that time worthwhile. You're not going to save it for them. Whereas in a larger organization, larger, blah, Jesus. Whereas in a larger organization, used to shaving, you know, a few minutes off of something everybody does can save an inordinate amount of time and therefore your time is worth it. I would also like to remind everybody at which you approach optimization of things or efficiency studies. And the first thing is you stop doing the thing entirely. Um, if you can find a process that is unneeded, that takes time, just have people stop doing it. And you've... There's no revision, there's no process control, there's no hacking on it and trying to figure out how to, how to tighten the loop. If you can just stop doing it, that's great. Um, one of the perfect examples of this is things like Ruby on Rails. So you have a framework that is written that abstracts away so much stuff. And yes, there is there are some issues with the way that that particular framework has been implemented, but it lets you skip so many of the opening blocks of I need to write an object model and I need a database and I need a schema migration tool and I need handlers and I need nothing and all this 
No, you can bypass a lot of that. And the whole setup, the whole system of Ruby on Rails is built for quick iterations in mind anyway. So it makes it really easy to keep on rolling forward as fast as you possibly can. Yep. I've been making an argument uh, similar to that about using Kubernetes. There's still random EC2 images, you know, floating around. And why do we need to continue to support all of that historical baggage? Are we moving to Kubernetes or are, do we have a different strategy? And if we can move to that same platform, we can vastly reduce what we have to support. Therefore, we can get more accomplished. You never want to be the first or the last user of anything in the organization, honestly. If you're the first one in, you have to do all the heavy lifting of figuring out how it works and all the other pieces there. And if you're the last one, it means you're holding up the train in terms of getting the efficiency gains out of saying, okay, well, we're all standardizing on this particular tool set. It may not be perfect for you, but it can really save everybody else around you a lot of time. So look into it. So as we talk about SRE and DevOps and latencies, I mean, this is kind of my thing because I do so much observability stuff, but I'm really starting to realize that when we called it operations, newer rack mounting servers were installing configured software. We moved into DevOps, into SRE land, where we're running images and have, using automation tools like Kubernetes to ease the burden of running those images in a fault-tolerant, highly reliable way. And I think one of the one of the things that we will step through on our journey as this profession grows and changes and morphs is that eventually our job as operations folks, for lack of a better phrase, will be we understand the statistics, we can see the dashboards, and we can monitor the latency of different parts of the system and have enough AI tools for lack of a better name there um, to judge and figure out how our our stacks are performing how 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 operations is done and i think that we'll see much more of a knock like approach to operations because we're looking at the statistics we're looking at the math to identify this service isn't working well what's wrong with it rather than assembling bits from sort of the ground up and that's kind of a movement that i've kind of seen and you know, going back to brendan and saying taking a refresher course on statistics gives you an amazing skill set for doing this kind of sre like work if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and coworkers. we would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in overcast apple podcasts or your favorite podcast directory additionally we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks and good night. It's always DNS. <laughs> Real, it always is. Thank <laughs> you.